Well, having uh, done all the Gospels now, we're in a position to tonight actually do a chronology of the life and ministry of Jesus. So basically what we're going to do is start right at the beginning and we're going to go right through his life from his birth to his death and his being raised again. And, you know, like doing the time scales, um, you know, where he is at any particular time and taking examples, because obviously one can't do everything that the Gospels record, but taking examples so you can see what well-known miracles and what well-known bits of teaching occur where and when. So that's, that's what we're going to do. And we start at the beginning with, with his birth and his childhood. And, and of course, as you know, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke do that, cover that. And so we're going to put those together for the first, um, the first part of Jesus' life. And um, it all begins with um, an angel appearing to a guy called Zechariah old boy, married to an old girl called Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth, a relative of Mary, who has become the mother of Jesus. And you'll remember that the angel uh, tells him that he and his wife are going to have a son um, who's going to be John the Baptist, and he's going to be the herald of the Messiah. <clears throat> and you'll remember that um, Zechariah explains to the angel why this wouldn't, of course, be possible. Uh, because of their age, and uh, the angel duly strikes him dumb because of his unbelief. So Zechariah has been told that his wife's going to become pregnant with John the Baptist. He didn't believe it, and now he can't talk. Now, six months later, um, an angel announces Jesus' conception to Mary. And as with Zechariah, this angel is the Archangel Gabriel. So it's basically the same angel, Gabriel, doing all these visitations surrounding the birth of Jesus. So now, six months after Elizabeth has conceived John the Baptist, six months later, her relative, young Mary, is told by the angel that she is going to conceive Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and that this Jesus is going to be the saviour of the world. And about this time, uh, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And uh, you'll remember, Jesus is, is just beginning in her womb. John the Baptist is six months old in Elizabeth's womb. And when Mary arrives, the little baby in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps for joy at the mere presence of Jesus in Mary's womb. And, uh, you know, you have that, that, that lovely kind of when Elizabeth says how blessed she is that the mother of her Lord should come and visit. Because even though she was an old lady, there's Mary. Elizabeth knew that the baby in Mary's womb, though only literally days old possibly at that time, knows that that is her Lord God. And so she says how blessed that I am that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me. Now Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months and uh, she returns home to Nazareth which is where she and um, her fiancé Joseph live. And, um, and at this point 
an angel appears to Joseph. Now, we're not told it's Gabriel, but probably it is. And Joseph is in the position, obviously, of his fiancée becoming pregnant. Now, he knew she wasn't pregnant by her, didn't at that juncture jump to the conclusion, oh, yes, I wonder if she's going to give birth to Messiah and therefore it's a virgin birth. He kind of didn't jump to that conclusion. So it took Gabriel appearing to him and telling him that Mary had conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph knew that Mary hadn't been unfaithful to him. And although they were just engaged, uh, the talk about that he was going to put her away in divorce uh, in Jewish custom at that time, a, a, an engagement was so binding that it actually took a divorce to end an engagement, let alone a marriage. And then you have the birth of John the Baptist. So at the time, the same time that the angel tells Joseph that Mary is pregnant with Jesus by the Holy Spirit, that's around the time that John the Baptist is born. And you'll remember that um, just, just after he is born, they take him down the temple to dedicate him. And uh, you'll remember everyone saying, oh, what are they going to call him? And of course, everyone assumed it would be Zechariah after his father. And Elizabeth, because of course, Zechariah still can't speak, says that his name's going to be John. And, and that amazes everyone. So I think, yeah, but there's no one in your family called John. And then you'll remember old, old Zech gets a bit of paper and writes down, his name will be John. And then lo and behold, he can speak again. So Zechariah's speaking again. Then we jump another six months to the birth of Jesus himself. So John the Baptist is now six months old. Mary gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. And you'll remember her and um, <coughs> Joseph had to travel from Nazareth, which was up north, down to Bethlehem, which was down south for the census. Because although they lived in Nazareth up north, uh, Joseph originally came from Bethlehem, from the town of David. So that's where he had to go um, in order to do the census. And you remember there was no room for them in the inn. And uh, so Mary gave birth to Jesus in, in, in the stable. And you'll remember that the shepherds were there uh, in the fields tending the flocks. And, uh, and significantly, it was in Bethlehem, it was in the fields there, where they reared the animals for the sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem, which was only a few miles away. And so what's, what's so amazing is that these were the shepherds who were literally tending the lambs of God who were going to be sacrificed in the temple. And of course, the Old Testament sacrifice, the temple sacrifice, the lambs that were sacrificed and everything, they were all pictures of Jesus who was to come. And so these same shepherds who were tending the animals that were to be sacrifices in the temple, angels appear to them and they say, Jesus has just been born the actual Lamb of God, the real Lamb of God. So go and, go and tend him for a little while. And so these shepherds who were doing the lambs of God in the field, now they get to do the real Lamb of God and they get to go and see Jesus and to worship him. Eight days later, Jesus is circumcised, according to the law of Moses, obviously. And then 32 days later, which would be 40 days after he was born, he was presented in the temple in Jerusalem, again, according to, to the law. And you'll remember that there was no boy Simeon there and, and he starts prophesying uh, you know, over Jesus and saying, this is the saviour of the world, this is the coming one, this is the Messiah. And, uh, and there was a prophetess in the temple called Anna. 
and she starts prophesying all over the place that this baby was Messiah. So, you know, sort of like pretty obvious to everyone that Messiah had, had been born. Now, the next bit of the story we get is the, um, the visit by the Magi. You remember, these are the wise men coming from the east. And uh, these, these would have been, I mean, years before, you remember, Daniel had become the first believer Magi. The Magi were basically occultists. But Daniel, because of the position he was given in Babylon, he became like the first believer Magi. And he, he'd started a school and a tradition of believing Magi. And of course, it was through Daniel that you had the prophecy of what was known as the 70 weeks or the 77s. That's in uh, Daniel chapter 9, if memory serves me correctly. And it was that prophecy that actually gave, predicted when Messiah was going to be born, you know, down down to the year. And uh, so therefore, these are magi of the Daniel school. I mean, obviously, even though Daniel had been dead hundreds of years, but these would have been magi. Uh, you know, from the Daniel believing school, and they would have known, well, any day now Messiah's due. And so they were waiting for him, and, and God had led them by this star, and they, they'd seen the star in the east. And uh, I, they were in the east when they saw the star. The star would have been in the west, and they headed west to Jerusalem, and uh, then eventually, you'll remember, they, they went to Herod, and Herod tricked them, and said, oh, well, when you find him, let me know so I can go and worship him which of course was a trick. Herod wanted to kill the baby. And, uh, but nevertheless, the Magi eventually, the, the star leads them to Jesus' home. And this would have been when he was back in Nazareth with his mum and dad. So although kind of like it gets in everyone's head, like from the Christmas story and the postcards, that sort of like the Magi were virtually there the night Jesus was born. No, the shepherds were there the night Jesus was born. But the Magi, this was anything up to two years later, and it would have been at Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. So they eventually find him and uh, present their gifts. And you'll remember that they were warned by God to, to, to go back to their place without going to Herod because Herod was trying to trick them. Then eventually, Herod realises that, um, you know, sort of like he's, he's been tricked as well. And uh, Joseph is warned in a dream to flee Israel. And you'll remember that Joseph takes Mary and Jesus down to uh, Egypt for quite a long time. And it was at that point that Herod, realising that the wise men had tricked him and weren't going to report back to him, what he does is he has all the children um, up to two years old. And of course, this is how we know that by then this was up to two years after the birth of Jesus. He has all those children in kind of like the Bethlehem Ephraim area um, kind of murdered, which, which was a terrible thing. And incidentally, he got the wrong location anyway, because by then Jesus was actually in Nazareth, up north in Galilee. But nevertheless, God had warned Joseph in a dream, and while this was going on, even though it was happening down south, uh, Jesus was, was safe um, in Egypt with his mum and dad. And then up to a year or so later, Joseph is t shown in a dream that it's safe to go back, and uh, finding out that Herod had, had died. And, um, but, but rather than settle down south, where originally he planned to, they ended up, through God's guidance, returning to Nazareth, which is where they traditionally had lived anyway. So now they return to Nazareth, and at this point, 
Jesus is up to three years of age. Now the next incident we get is nine or so years later when Jesus is 12. And this is when Jesus like, is approaching like bar mitzvah, like adult time, as it were. And uh, he'd gone down, you'll remember, to Jerusalem with his mum and dad, and he was in the temple. And uh, they, they went home, assuming that Jesus was travelling back with another group. And, uh, but in actual fact, Jesus had, had remained in Jerusalem. And you'll remember that he was in the temple, and that the, the, the kind of like the priests and the teachers in the temple were absolutely amazed at the questions that he was asking, and, and amazed at the knowledge that he had. And you'll remember that when Mary and Joseph realised that Jesus hadn't come home, they scurried back to Jerusalem and they found him in the temple. And, uh, and you'll remember that Mary said to him, you know, your, your father and I were looking for you. And obviously he's saying your father, meaning Joseph, who was Jesus's adoptive father. And Jesus's response to that is, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? Now that was in riposte to what Mary had said, don't you realise your father and I are looking for you? And that was Jesus affirming, no, Joseph isn't actually my father, he's my adopted father, but my real father lives here in the temple. So Jesus knew who he was, even at the age of 12. And, uh, and so you remember it says that Mary stored all these things up in her heart, and Jesus went back with them, and, and, and he lived in uh, obedience to them while he was growing up. Right, now the Gospels next take us to Jesus, age 30, which is the age at which you can become a rabbi, which he kind of unofficially was. There were official rabbis and unofficial rabbis. Rabbi simply was meant teacher. So Jesus is now of the age to be, you know, kind of like a, a religious teacher of the day. <coughs> and so we, we join the narrative at, at that point. And, and we begin with the ministry of John the Baptist. So back to John the Baptist now. Remember, he was nine months older than Jesus. He's going strong. Uh, he lives in the wilderness and he, like, you know, dresses very simply and he lives on locusts and honey. Um, but, every, you know, but he comes out and he preaches and he baptises people. And, of course, the main push behind all that he was saying was that he was the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies about someone who would be a voice crying in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord, the coming of Messiah. And so John the Baptist, he was calling people to repentance, he was baptising them, and he was telling them that after him would come someone whose sandals he was unworthy to untie. And that this person, obviously the Messiah, would baptise them not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. So all four Gospels give us the ministry of John the Baptist, and then the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and, and Luke, give us the story of Jesus' baptism, which John just gives in retrospect, all right, but Matthew, Mark and Luke actually give us a narrative of it. And you'll remember John baptises Jesus reluctantly, because he says, really, Lord, you should be baptising me. And you'll remember the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then, of course, immediately after that, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit for 40 days of prayer and fasting. And it was in that context, you'll remember, that Satan came to him 
and he faced kind of the temptation in the wilderness. Now, the, the next thing we get is uh, the first calling of some of the disciples. And again, all four Gospels, you put them together and you have the initial calling of Peter, James, John, Philip and Nathaniel. So there's an initial calling, Jesus' first gathering of a few people um, around him. And then we, we have the turning of the water into wine um, up in Cana at the wedding. So, so now Jesus kind of, he's, he's up north, that's his home territory where he was brought up. And it's just John's Gospel that tells us that. You remember he was at the wedding and, you know, kind of they ran out of wine and Mary kind of like, you know, I, I suppose sort of says, oh, you know, G Jesus will sort this out. And Jesus said, oh, you know, don't, don't volunteer me, Mary, because my time hasn't come yet, or mum, rather, he'd called her. Um, and, uh, but nevertheless, he worked the miracle and he turned the water into wine. And at that point, we're six months from his baptism, all right? So we haven't really, his ministry proper hasn't got going yet, but we're six months um, after his baptism. Now, at that point, his ministry proper begins. And he goes down to Judea, so he goes down south, that's the Jerusalem area, and, um, and for eight months he engages in what we, we term the early Judean ministry. And the first recorded thing he does, and this is from John's Gospel, and we're just given highlights, we're told very little about this first eight months. What little we are told, we're told by John. And uh, the first thing we're told is that this was the first time that Jesus threw all the money changers and the traders out of the temple, physically, threw them out. Because they were, well, you know, I mean, they were just profaning the temple because they were just using it to make money. So Jesus throws everyone out of the temple. And he does that the first time. He does it later on as well. And uh, then the other thing that we're told is the story about Nicodemus. Do you remember? He was the chief rabbi in Israel. He was the head of the rabbinical school. He was one of Israel's main men, religiously speaking, a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, later became a Christian, eventually did believe in Jesus. And you'll remember that here we have the teaching when Jesus says to him about Nicodemus, you must be born again. And, well, we covered that in detail, didn't we, when we were doing John's Gospel. And then after eight months of travelling around Judea, and, you know, sort of that's, that's all, the cleansing of the temple and the Nicodemus thing are the only bits of information we have about that early eight months. So, so just two little snapshots. The rest of the time, anybody's guess. I suppose standard stuff, but we just don't know. But uh, at the end of this eight months, um, Jesus is, head, he heads back up to Galilee, so he travels up north. But as he travels up north, he passes through Samaria. And John tells us, John's Gospel, uh, his encounter with the woman at the well. And you'll remember this was the woman who had had five husbands and was living in sin and, uh, you know, had that kind of conversation with Jesus, you know, about places of worship. And, 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 and Jesus tells her, look, I am the Messiah. And you remember, she goes back to her town and she says, look, come, come and meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. And Jesus stays there for a few days. And, uh, and then eventually the people say to the woman, we believe now, but not because of what you, you tell us, but because we've seen and heard with our own ears that, that this is the one who was to come. And so lots of people in Samaria become believers. 
Right, so G Jesus is now heading back um, up north where he originated from and, um, and we have two years of the Galilean ministry. And uh, all four Gospels give us information about this two years, but it's concentrated on primarily uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I'm going to break this down into four six-month periods, all right? So we've got the first six months, second, third, fourth, etc., etc. Now, the first six months, we're not told very much about. The first six months of the Galilean ministry, highlights only. And, um, and again, from, from John's Gospel, we, we have that the story of the nobleman whose son uh, was, was uh, healed at Capernaum. You remember this nobleman, he said, you know, sort of like, my son is ill, heal him. And he went home and, and, and his servants told him that his son had, had been healed at the exact moment when Jesus had told him that he would be. Um, then Jesus visits Nazareth, which was his hometown, where he was um, brought up. And uh, you remember he went into the synagogue and he, he read the bit about, you know, from Isaiah, the prophecies about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, that one. And then he says, this day, uh, you know, kind of this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, and, you know, and then he, he tells them about, you know, sort of like from, uh, you know, sort of like the time of Elijah and Elisha how God rejected Israel and, and, and blessed the Gentiles. And of course, just beginning to, to bring across the fact that he knew full well that Israel was going to reject him and that therefore the kingdom would cross over to the Gentiles and, you know, sort of like Israel would be rejected and the, the, the Gentile church would take over. And you remember they dragged him up to the top of a cliff and they tried to throw him off to kill him. But uh, Jesus, like, passed uh, through their hands. Um, then you get the second calling of the disciples, and this is Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So uh, for the second time, Jesus starts to gather people around him. Um, Peter's mother-in-law was healed. She had a fever, and Peter took Jesus home, and Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And, uh, and then at that point, we, we, we have the beginnings of, of major healings and deliverances. And now Jesus, you know, people come from all over and Jesus heals them all and all who had demons he, he casts out. Uh, we have the calling of Matthew, who wrote Matthew's Gospel, or Levi, um, as, as he was known as well. And it's during this two years in Galilee, up north, that the conflict with the Pharisees and the priests get going. And you remember how Jesus kept challenging them on the issue of the tradition of the elders, that all the, the laws, which, which hadn't come from the Old Testament, but all the kind of like the extra laws that, uh, that the Pharisees had added to over the years. Jesus breaks all these, what were called the traditions of the elders. And, uh, and of course that really puts their noses out of joint. And their fight with him wasn't because he ever broke the law of Moses. Their fight with him was because he was breaking all their man-made traditions, which hadn't come from the Old Testament at all. So the battle lines, are now being drawn, and it was all on the issue of the tradition of the elders. Now, at this point, at the end of the first six months that Jesus has gone up to Galilee, um, we go to John's Gospel, who records a visit that Jesus makes down to Jerusalem. All right. So, although Jesus is primarily up north in Galilee, after being there for six months, he just makes a one-off visit down to Jerusalem, uh, only John records it. 
and uh, it, it's it's when Jesus healed uh, the man who had been uh, kind of paralysed for 38 years, and uh, you remember he was at the pool of Siloam, and um, and you know Jesus told him pick up your bed and walk, which the man duly did, and then immediately gets into trouble with the Pharisees because it was a Sabbath. And there are two things that, according to the tradition of the elders, couldn't happen on a Sabbath. You mustn't be healed on a Sabbath, and you mustn't pick up your bed and walk on the Sabbath. So he gets into trouble from the Pharisees, and this heightens, this takes the battle against Jesus on the basis of the tradition of the elders. This now draws the battle lines down in Judea. I mean, Jesus went down there to heal this man, but he also went down there to spread the warfare so that now both parts of Israel, north and south, are well and truly up in arms against Jesus. So having healed the man at the pool of, Bi- uh, the pool of Siloam, Jesus heads back up north uh, to Galilee. So now we come into the second six months that he's up in Galilee. All right? And during this second six months, Jesus officially appoints the twelve disciples as his apostles. So that is done now at this point. We have the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the, the, the great teacher begins with the Beatitudes, the blessed are you, this, that, and the other, and obviously all, all, all the teaching about you know trusting God and you know the birds of the air get fed by God and don't worry and you mustn't judge in a hypocritical way you know you can't try and remove a speck from your brother's eye if you've got a plank in your own and 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 the whole sermon on the mount teaching is is during that period of time and also now we get the blasphemy against the holy spirit and you'll remember this was when jesus had cast out a dumb spirit now this according to the teaching of the pharisees according to the tradition of the elders was a messianic miracle You'll remember we saw that uh, according to Pharisaic Judaism, in order to carry out an exorcism, you had to establish verbal communication with the demon, discover its name, and then cast it out using its name. That's not biblical, and that isn't how you should cast out demons today. But that was how they did it. Now, obviously, their problem was if you had a dumb demon that wouldn't talk to you, it wouldn't tell you, you know, its its name. They believe demons have names. I mean, you know, we know they don't. That's clear from the Bible. But the point is, they believe that they did. But if you had a dumb demon that wouldn't tell you its name, well, they their formula wouldn't work. So therefore, they couldn't cast out dumb demons. And so they said, the casting out of dumb demons is a messianic sign. So Jesus comes along, and there's someone who's dumb because they've got a demon. Jesus casts it out breaks the Pharisaic formula, demonstrates you don't have to talk to demons to cast them out, you just tell them to go in the name of Jesus. And the Pharisees, because obviously this puts their nose out of joint because he's just done a messianic miracle. Well, they're in trouble now. Everyone's saying, it's the Messiah, it's the Messiah. And what they say is, no, he did it by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus demonstrates how ludicrous it was for him to be saying that he cast out a demon by the power of Satan and a messianic one as well. I mean, it was just nuts. And you'll remember that now Jesus says, you've blasphemed the Spirit, and there won't be forgiveness in this age or the age to come. The point is, this was a national sin. This was when Israel was rejected. And the point was that it wouldn't be forgiven in that era, that time, which was the time of Israel, Old Testament era-like, and the time to come is the church age. 
Well, it's only after the church age that Israel, during the Great Tribulation, is, is brought back in, as it were, and, 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 and the branches are grafted back onto the vine. So that was the point when Jesus says, right, basically, Israel as a nation has had it. The leaders have rejected me, knowing full well who I was. And you'll remember that this was the beginning of we- as, uh, as well of Jesus teaching in parables, like coded language, that he'd tell his disciples what it meant in secret, you know, or, or personally, okay? And that the parables, teaching in parables, replaced the kind of the miraculous... Up to this time, Jesus was working miracles left, right and centre and making his point through the miracles. From this point onwards, the miracles are done more on the side and the upfront bit is Jesus teaching in parables. And of course, according to Old Testament prophecy, the method of teaching by parables was prophesied that that was a sign of God's judgment on Israel. And so by now teaching in parables, Jesus is reinforcing that they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and Israel is now under terminal judgment from God. You also have the uh, raising of the widow of Nain's son from the dead. And you remember Jesus said the only sign Israel's going to get now is the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of the whale and then coming out again, equaled the resurrection of Jesus. And so what Jesus was saying is the, the sign I will keep giving Israel now is resurrection from the dead, because ultimately he was raised from the dead and that's what proved ultimately who he was. And so here, immediately, having said that they blasphemed the Spirit, having started to teach in parables, he gives them a demo and he raises someone from the dead. And then at this point, he visits Nazareth again, so back to his hometown, and uh, who still reject him. They don't try and kill him this time, so it's a bit better. But nevertheless, they don't believe in him. And uh, this, this was when Jesus said, a prophet is not without honour except in his own city. And uh, so that was the second visit to Nazareth. Right, now that brings us to the end of the first year of his ministry up in Galilee. Again, remember, I'm just taking highlights. There are loads of more things that the Gospels are telling us happened, but I'm just taking highlights now, obviously. So we now begin the second year of his ministry up in up north in Galilee. And it's now that he sends the twelve out to evangelize and preach and heal and cast out demons on their own. He'd appointed them some six months earlier, but now he sends them out on their own. All right. Uh, at this point too, John the Baptist is beheaded by Herod. And you'll remember that, 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 that Salome set this up with the old dancing and at one of his you know, banquets. And he says, you know, tell me what you want and I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I want the head of John the Baptist, you know. So John the Baptist cops it now. We have the feeding of the 5,000. And you'll remember that we noted that what was you know, significant about that is that The feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection of Jesus are the only two miracles recorded by all four Gospels. Got to check that in, bit of nice trivia there. Um, You get the walking on the water. When, uh, you know, the the, the disciples are out in the boat, the storm rises and Jesus walks to them on the water and Peter, Jesus calls Peter out of the boat and Peter walks on the water as well. You get that during this six months. Um, You get... All Jesus' teaching about him being the bread of life and the manna from heaven. And uh, then you get the feeding of the 4,000. 
and uh, which happened a bit later, not too much later, and Jesus kind of does a repeat of the feeding of the 5,000, but he just does it with 4,000. Now we move into the last six months of uh, this uh, period of two years up in Galilee, and it's during that time that you have Peter's confession of who Jesus is. You remember when uh, Jesus said to the disciples, who, who do men say that I am? And, and they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet, some blah, blah, blah. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter. It says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then Jesus gives the teaching about, on this rock I will build my church. But not meaning that Peter was the rock, it was Peter's realisation in the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was the Christ. And so therefore, that is you know, kind of the basis. And Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then we have the transfiguration when Jesus is revealed in all his glory and uh, Moses and Elijah are there with him. And you'll remember that Elijah never died. Elijah went straight to heaven, didn't he, in a chariot of fire. And, uh, and although Moses died, we know from Jude's letter that, in act, that there was a fight between Satan and the archangel Michael over his body. And the reason for that fight, obviously, was that Moses was raised again from the dead and taken up into heaven, so that Elijah and Moses are alive in heaven. All right. Not, not like those who are in heaven but without bodies. Moses and Elijah are alive in heaven. And so therefore, at the transfiguration, they could appear with Jesus physically. All right. And of course, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. So Moses and Elijah were, 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 were kind of... I mean, Abraham was arguably the most important Jewish figure because he was the beginning. He was the first Jew. But outside of Abraham, Moses and Elijah were the two most important figures in Israel's history. Moses representing the law, and Elijah coming to represent all the prophets. And so there's the transfiguration. And it's during this time as well that Jesus starts to predict that he is going to be crucified, and that he's going to be put to death, and that he's going to be raised again from the dead. Now. As we get to the end of this two years up in Galilee, we are now three years and two months into the ministry of Jesus. So at this point, the, the bulk of his three and a half year ministry is coming to an end. And now we move into the last four months of Jesus's ministry. And this is what we call the Perean and later Judean ministry. Because what Jesus does now, for the four months leading up to his death, he goes back down south into the area around Jerusalem. All right, So he goes back down south. But you'll remember the area of Perea was the other side of the Jordan, across the Jordan to the east. And of course, that was where the Transjordan tribes had settled. So you'll remember way back in, a, in, a, in Joshua's day, when Joshua was leading them into the Promised Land, you'll remember that Israel spent quite a bit of time the other side of the Jordan. And it was during there that two and a half of the tribes said, we want to settle here. 
because it's really nice. And so you'll remember that Joshua had the arrangement, well, okay, well, as long as you come and fight with us to get the rest of the promised land, as long as you do that, you can settle the other side of the Jordan. And that was the area known as Perea, all right? So that was like Jewish territory as well. So now, for the next four months, or leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus heads back down south, but some of the time he's across the Jordan in the area of Perea, where the Transjordan tribes had historically settled. Now, this particular part of Jesus' ministry, again, all four Gospels cover it, but it's the Gospel of Luke that concentrates on it most. So again, you can see how, because different Gospels concentrate on different things, each bit of Jesus' life is highlighted by somebody. So, you know, we get a good, a good picture. Now then, it was during this last four months that we have the incident when the little children are brought to Jesus. You remember, the mums, they, 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 they bring all their children, disciples send them away. And, um, you know, and Jesus said, no, suffer the little children to come unto me. We have the story about the rich young ruler that, that Jesus said to him, well, for you, you've got to go and sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. That's what it's going to take for you to follow me. And you remember he, he went away sad because he couldn't hack it. And, uh, you know, sort of like his money was more important to him than Jesus was. And, and so the rich young ruler didn't get saved. Um, we have the healing of blind Bartimaeus and his mate uh, between the two Jerichos. You'll remember one of the Gospels places this miracle when Jesus is leaving Jericho. One of the other Gospels places this miracle when Jesus is approaching Jericho. And this was always one of the classic, look, the Bible contradicts itself kind of things that people used to throw at it. And then eventually archaeologists discovered that during the time of Herod, Herod rebuilt Jericho. He relocated it. And of course, when you relocate a town, it takes a while to, to, to move the population from one of them to the other. And, uh, and so what was actually happening at this time in the ministry of Jesus, this new Jericho that had been built by Herod, relocated to a different place, there were people living in the old Jericho and there were people living in the new Jericho. And what's happening here is Jesus is leaving one Jericho, <laughs> travelling to the other Jericho. See, it wasn't a contradiction at all. It was just that we lacked the information we needed to reconcile it to show that it wasn't a contradiction, and eventually archaeologists discovered it, you know, by realising there were two Jerichos. And, um, and was it interesting as well, when Sharif showed us that video the other day, didn't he? There was that town on that video that the, uh, the, the Greeks had deserted. You know, there you had a town, it was there, all the houses was there, deserted, because the people had relocated. Well, that's exactly what you had with Jericho at this particular time. Only, one, only it wasn't that one had been deserted, there were still people living in each. Um, at this point, we have the, the 70 who are sent out. So obviously Jesus is, you know, gathering more and more genuine believers, you know, sort of around him, and there's a group of 70 that he sends out, and they preach and heal the sick and cast demons out. And you remember, they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons are, are subject to us in your name. And you remember Jesus said, look, don't, don't, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, you know, rejoice that your name is, is written in heaven. And, and that's something, you know, sort of like when, you know, sort of like, you know, if you, you know, sort of like, you know, the Lord uses you to cast demons out, it's a, 
you know, it's a pretty awesome demo of God's power, and it's it's wonderful to see it done, and it's wonderful to do it. But there's always a danger of getting sidetracked. What really matters is that Jesus has saved us. Um, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, remember Jesus's story about a guy who got beaten up by bandits and you know left to, to rot in the gutter, and you know priests and Pharisees went by all the good guys. Then a Samaritan comes by and he helps him. You remember, of course, the push behind it is that the Jews hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans were this kind of, you know, this half-breed Jewish race. They were the result of the interbreeding uh, of the ten tribes in the north when they'd been carted off into the Assyrian captivity. So the Jews looked down their nose, you know, at the Samaritans. They were kind of half-Jews, kind of nearly Jews, not quite Jews, and, and, you know, they kind of, like, hated them. And so that was the push behind it. And um, also at this point, we have the, the woman who was taken in adultery. Now, the next f- few things we, we get from John's Gospel only. You remember, she, she was the woman that uh, the Jews caught her in adultery. But they didn't bring the bloke. And of course, it takes two to commit adultery. Oh, yeah, it did last time I read about it. Anyway, and uh, so therefore, the fact that the bloke wasn't there, they were trying to trick Jesus. And it was the only occasion when they challenged Jesus on the basis of the Old Testament. And of course, what they were trying to do was to get Jesus to say, no, she should be stoned. Because then that would have got Jesus in trouble with the Roman authorities, because uh, Israel, under Roman occupation, didn't have the legal right from Rome to put anyone to death. And so they were using the Old Testament law there in a completely um, ignoble way. I mean, there was no honour in it at all. They were just trying to catch Jesus out. And of course, you'll remember that Jesus knelt down and he, he wrote in the sand with his finger. Of course, the point was, the commandments, the Mosaic commandments, Ten Commandments, they were written with the finger of God. Well, whose finger was the finger of God? It was Jesus's anyway. It's like Jesus writing and saying, oh, you're, you're trying to catch me out on the Ten Commandments? I wrote the Ten Commandments in those tablets of stone with my finger. And, of course, Jesus turns on and says, right, okay, let him without sin cast the first stone. And what he does is he challenges the authenticity of them being witnesses to that crime. And basically he's saying, those of you who have not committed the same sin, you throw the stone out of first. Now, the witnesses, in, under Jewish law in the Old Testament, the witnesses carried out the punishment. That was, that was a good safeguard against perjury. Because if you were the witness in a trial that, that, that would lead to someone being stoned to death, as the witness, you had to throw the first stone. You had to partake in the execution. And also, if you were a false witness, if you were discovered that you had perjured yourself in a trial, whatever punishment the person being tried had got, you got. So if you were found to have perjured yourself in a trial that led to someone's execution, you yourself would be executed. Because this was a safeguard against people very easily perjuring themselves or making false accusations. You couldn't walk away from the court and then someone else carries out the punishment. The witnesses had to carry out the punishment. And uh, so what Jesus is saying, right, okay, those of you who are legitimate witnesses, i.e. who haven't committed adultery themselves, you throw the first stone. And they all went away. Because Jesus, by word and knowledge, knew that they'd all committed adultery as well. And so they tried to catch him out, and of course it didn't work at all. Um, We have now Jesus' teaching, for instance, on I am the good shepherd, 
and the door to the sheep, that teaching that we saw in John's Gospel, that occurs at this particular point in time. Uh, the healing of the man born blind, and you'll remember the significance of that. Once more, it's another example of a messianic miracle. There had never been an instance in Israel's history where someone who'd been born blind had been healed. And so the healing of someone who'd been born blind had been designated a messianic miracle by the tradition of the elders, the teachings of the Pharisees at the time. And of course, the other one that was the classic messianic miracle was the healing of lepers. Because no, no leper in Israel's history had ever been healed. Gentile lepers had been healed, but there had never been an instance of a Jewish leper being healed. And of course, Jesus healed Jewish lepers all over the place. Again, that was a messianic miracle. So you've got the healing of the man born blind, and again, establishing that Jesus was who he claimed to be, not, not just by uh, the Old Testament, but according to all their extra-biblical you know, teachings that they'd made up themselves. Jesus proved who he was by the Old Testament and by their own teachings as well. And also you get the raising of Lazarus from the dead again in John's Gospel. So another example, you know, that would have been another of these, the sign of, of Jonah, Jonah being raised from the dead, or, or, or that, that Jonah being coming out of the belly of the whale was a picture of Jesus would eventually come out of death. He would die and then he would be raised again. And of course the significance of this Jonah thing was that when Jonah came out of the belly of the whale, where was he? He was on a beach near Nineveh. Now, what was Nineveh? Nineveh was a city of the Assyrians. The Assyrians had carted the northern tribes off into captivity. The Assyrians were seen historically by the Jews as being totally evil. And, and indeed, the reason that Jonah ran away and got swallowed by the, fish, by the whale in the first place, not a whale, but the big fish, was that he wouldn't go to Nineveh to preach the gospel because he feared that if he did, Nineveh would repent and God would spare them and wouldn't judge them. And he wanted God to judge them. And the point is that when the big fish spewed him out on the beach, he knew he had to go to Nineveh after all. He wasn't going to escape God. So he goes along, he preaches the gospel, and the Ninevites repent and they don't get judged. And God blesses them. And that drove, drove him bananas because he wanted them to be blessed. And of course the point is, Israel is rejecting Jesus, the Gentiles are going to accept him. Of course, the church is a largely Gentile affair. So this was the point about the sign of Jonah. Israel blasphemed the Spirit, rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So Jesus said, right, you're going to get the sign of Noah, my resurrection from the dead. But the point is, when Jesus rose again from the dead, where did the blessings of the kingdom go? To the Jews? No, it went to the Gentiles. Because as a judgment for rejecting Jesus, Israel was cut out of God's vine. They're going to be brought back in in the future. At the end of the church age, after the rapture, Israel is back in. But Israel is out for the time being. So that was the push behind the, you know, the Jonah thing. And that would have really, you know, really hit the Jews right, right between the, the eyes. Now then, remember, at this point, all right, Jesus has worked various messianic miracles. With every messianic miracle he works, You'll remember a group of Pharisees are appointed to follow him, to have all these various stages that they go through to make sure the miracles are genuine, to listen to his teaching, to ask questions, to find out if the whole thing is genuine or not. Now at this point they've had Jesus up to here. 
He's just healed a man born blind. He set off another messianic miracle. They have to go through the whole... So there's all these groups of Pharisees. There's one person they hate beyond description, it's Jesus. They're having to spend every day with him. You know, going through all these tests prescribed by their traditions of the elders every time a messianic miracle is worked. So what does Jesus do now? He now heals ten lepers. So, so, so they're stuck with Jesus for the next few months. I mean, you can just see Jesus slowly driving them up the wall. And at this point, Zacchaeus is uh, converted as well. Remember the money collector who went up into the tree and that? Um, then Jesus does more teaching um, on the fact that he's going to be crucified and, uh, and, and raised again from the dead. So that, that's the last four months down in Judea, Judea and uh, Perea. Right, we now come to Jesus' last week. All right? And I'm going to whip through so you can see the order of events in Jesus' last seven days, well, leading up to his death. Now, let's start with the Saturday. Now, on the Saturday, Jesus goes to be with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus, who he'd raised from the dead, all right? And they lived in Bethany, which was just outside of Jerusalem. So, Jesus goes to their house, and it appears that Jesus now stays with them for the next few days. So there's Mary and Martha who were sisters and you know, they appear at various points in the Gospels and Lazarus, their brother, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And you'll remember at this point that Mary anoints Jesus' feet with costly perfume. And this was when the disciples were saying, you know, well, this could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus said, no, the poor you'll always have with me, but she's anointed me for burial. That happened on the Saturday. So that was a Sabbath. So not very much would have been going on on the Sabbath. That would have been a stay at home and just going to the temple day. Sunday, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the donkey. Now this, this was when, or, or Palm Sunday, you remember Jesus rides in and all the crowds are there putting palms down on the floor and they're recognising him like as Messiah. And this is fulfilling uh, the prophecies of Zechariah, behold your king comes riding on a donkey. And of course the point, is, when a king came riding on a donkey, it signified peace, it signified goodwill. But if a king came on a white horse, that signified a declaration of war. Now here, Jesus' first coming, it was for peace, to save. At the second coming, Jesus comes on a white horse because, he's come to, because then he'll be coming to make war with the world and to judge the world for rejecting him. But here, you've got, behold, your king comes you know, to you on a donkey and the crowds are doing Hosanna, Hosanna, and the Pharisees tell them to shut up. And you remember Jesus said, look, if they do shut up, the very stones will cry out to me. And uh, so you get the Palm Sunday and then back to Bethany in the evening. On the Monday, you have the cursing of the fig tree. Then when Jesus cursed the fig tree and you know, and the disciples said, oh, what's all this about? And of course, the cursing of the fig tree was Israel was God's fig tree. That was one of the prophetic you know, pictures of Israel in the Old Testament. The cursing of the fig tree bore no fruit when it should have done. Israel by now should have been believing in Jesus, but it wasn't. So you get the cursing of the fig tree. Figurative, pardon the pun, figurative 
of Israel's coming rejection and you get the second cleansing of the temple. A second time Jesus throws everyone out of the temple and tells them that it should be a place of prayer, not a place of profit and greed. So notice with the cleansing of the temple, you know, my father's house should be a house of prayer. Jesus started his ministry with it, cleansing the temple, and he ends his ministry with it. Wow, that's, uh, that's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. A lot is. But Jesus is more than gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's king of kings, he's lord of lords. And one day he'll come with a sword from his mouth and he will kill all the unbelievers. So gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that's true towards those who are repentant. Towards those who aren't, he's anything but meek and mild. Now then, the next day, the Tuesday, this is his last appearance in the temple. And you get loads of teaching now. His last, this was a real day of, uh, you know, kind of teaching. And a lot of the teaching that we get in the Gospels, you know, sort of like com comes from here. You get the parables of the two sons. You'll remember the, the, the one son who his father said, go and work in the vineyard. And the first son said, I will, Dad, and didn't. And the second son said, I won't, but did. Israel said, I will, but didn't. The Gentiles said, we won't, but they did. All right, get a picture, the kingdom passing over to Israel. You get the marriage feast and uh, how there was a Jew there, but because he didn't have wedding garments, he was thrown out into outer darkness, establishing that you're, there's no salvation just because you're a Jew, as the Jews taught. Um, you get the, the taxes to Caesar. You know, Jesus took the coin, whose face is on this, Caesar's, will render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Uh, you get the Pharisees, uh, sorry, the Sadducees, they're the ones who didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were Sadducee, right? And they were the ones trying to trick Jesus with questions about that if, 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 if someone dies and they've had lots of husbands, which one is their husband? And Jesus saying, look, no, there's, there's no marriage in heaven. It's, you know in heaven will be like angels in that we don't marry. So, so you get the Sadducees doing their bit there. You get the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God and your neighbour as yourself. You get the widow's might, the widow put in all that she had and Jesus commended her. We get the seven woes pronounced on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Remember, this is like the Beatitudes in reverse. Not the blessed are you, but, but, you know, but woe to the scribes and the Pharisees because they shut the kingdom, the doors of the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. They won't go in, they won't let anyone else go in. And that they're whitewashed tombs, men walk over them, they're full of dead men's bones. You know, you get all the woes pronounced on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You have Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets. How I long to gather you under my wing like a hen gathers her chicks. But he says, but you would not. And he predicts the destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70. The Romans marched in, destroyed it. In fact, they didn't destroy it. Warring Jews in Jerusalem destroyed it, but it was a result of the Romans uh, surrounding um, Israel or, or surrounding Jerusalem. And you remember Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, this tells us that the second coming is going to be when Israel cries out for it. And at the end of the Great Tribulation, Israel will have been so reduced that Israel will so be on her knees because of what the Antichrist has done to her that they will cry out to Jesus to come and save them. And that is when you'll get the second coming. So you get all that going on in the temple, all that kind of teaching. And then, later on in the day, Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives. But he carries on teaching there. So he leaves the temple and he goes up to Mount of Olives. 
and uh, and then he does all the parables and the teachings about the the tribulation and the end times and the second coming uh you know you get the sort of like the fig tree he teaches on that that you know the fig tree being cursed and he does you know that sort of no fruit and that you should know the times and the seasons but but you don't you get the the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins uh, you know, a picture in the Great Tribulation that the, the, the Jews who believe will be saved, but the Jews who don't believe won't be saved. Um, you get the parable of the talents, like those who, who actually put their faith in Jesus and those who don't. And then you get the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats and how actually at the second coming that, that everyone on the face of the earth who survived the Great Tribulation will be divided and there'll be the sheep and the goats. This is the, 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 the judgment on the Gentiles and you get the goats, the unbelievers, and the sheep, the believers and the goats are killed and the sheep, the believers, go through into the thousand-year reign of Christ to repopulate the earth. So that's all the teaching that you're getting on this Tuesday, a major day of teaching. Um, and at that point, Judas bargains with the priests and arranges his son to betray Jesus. On the Wednesday, no mention. Day off? <laughs> don't know. No mention of the Wednesday at all. Quiet day at Bethany, perhaps. Now, on the Thursday, the Passover meal, all right? The Last Supper, Jesus instituting the love feast, washing the disciples' feet, get that from John. Judas is signalled as being the betrayer and leaves to actually betray Jesus. You have all the teaching that we saw in John's Gospel, chapter 13, to chapter 16, like the vine and the branches, the way, the truth and the life, and the Holy Spirit being another comforter, all that is happening here. The intercessory prayer of John 17, when Jesus prays for his disciples, and that's a great high priestly prayer. Um, then after the love feast, uh, after the Last Supper, they leave and they go out to the Mount of Olives. You have Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Take this cup away if you can, but not my will but yours. The disciples falling asleep because they can't stay awake with him. Then you get the arrest. And so the Jews come and they arrest Jesus. And you'll remember that Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus heals it. And, uh, and then he's taken into custody and the rest of the disciples flee. Right, so now we're overnight Thursday, so it's, it's Thursday evening now, and now we move into through the night on the Thursday, and we have the various trials. Jesus has been arrested, all right, and first of all we have three Jewish trials. Now this is through the night, these, these happen all night, and the first one is before Annas. Now Annas should have been the high priest, but he'd been deposed by the Romans. And it was his son-in-law who was the acting high priest. But many Jews still considered Annas to be the high priest. So what they did, Annas and Caiaphas doubled up. They did the high priest together like, all right. But he's taken before Annas, all right, who is Caiaphas's father-in-law. And, um, and they, they I mean, it's a mock trial, it's a joke. But uh, you know, but 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 Jesus is 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 kind of beaten, and and that this trial takes place is the signal that one way or the other we're going to have Jesus killed. He's then taken from Annas, and he's sent to Caiaphas, the active high priest, great high priest, and 
hear false witnesses abroad against Jesus. They can't even make their own testimony agree. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, sort of like he's tried for blasphemy. They beat him. They find him guilty of blasphemy. Jesus declares that he is the Messiah. And so they, they, they pass the death sentence on him. Then he is taken before the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the Jews. So obviously Annas and Caiaphas would have been there, but with other leading Jewish figures as well. I mean, you know, for instance, um, Nicodemus would have been there as well. And here the death sentence is ratified. I mean, these, these are completely illegal trials, but the death sentence is ratified uh, all, all the time Jesus being beaten, being punched, being kicked. Unbelievable. Now, it was while all that was going on that Peter, you'll remember that Peter had been in the courtyard outside Annas' house. And it was then that he does his denial of Jesus three times. And so what happens is that he denies Jesus three times. Then he sees Jesus, he meets Jesus' eye as Jesus is being taken from Annas' house to Caiaphas's. And that was when Peter went out and whipped wept bitterly, wept bitterly, wept bitterly, all right, because Jesus had told him it was going to happen. Now you get the Roman trials. The Jews now take Jesus to Rome, you know, to the Romans. He's taken to Pilate. This is all, you know, sort of in Jerusalem. He's taken before Pilate, who was the Jewish kind of, uh, sorry, he was the Roman authority over the south, Judea, and Pilate finds him not guilty. Herod, who was in charge of, this isn't Herod who killed the babies, all right, so his ancestor, all right. Herod was from Galilee, the north where Jesus was, but he was visiting for the Passover, so Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod mocks him, but, but, but finds him not guilty. So he's not guilty of any crime that Rome can have anything to do with. Sends him back to Pilate. Pilate, again, declares him to be not guilty and tries to get him released. Uh, you know, on the basis that he would release one prisoner of the Jews choosing, because it was Passover, but they chose Barabbas, who was the murderer, the terrorist. So Pilate tries but fails to get Jesus acquitted and uh, washes his hands of it. At that point, Judas commits suicide. That's when Judas does himself in. And now Jesus is flogged, 39 lashes mocked, the crown of thorns, the purple robes, and he's taken to the site of crucifixion, Golgotha, the place of the skull, Simon of Cyrene carrying his cross for him. So now we come to Jesus on the cross. He's on the cross for six hours. During the first three hours, we have he, he refuses a drink that would have numbed him a bit. We have three sayings during this three hours that Jesus is on the cross. We have the Father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And at that point, the soldiers divide his garments and the priests try to get the, the sign over the cross changed. You remember that Pilate put Jesus king of the Jews because there was no crime to put up there and the Jews try and persuade him to take it down and he won't. One of the two thieves becomes a believer. So Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then he hands over his mother into John's care. He says, dear woman, here is your son. And he says, here is your mother. So during those first three hours, Jesus is only concerned for other people. 
Now we get the second three hours. And it's three hours of darkness. Now there are four signs now. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is really going into bearing the sin of the world. Now he is cut off from the Father and from the Holy Spirit. We have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. And he took a drink of vinegar from a sponge. It is finished. And then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So during those three hours, and there was darkness, that was when he was bearing the sin of the world when he was cut off from his Father in heaven. But he said, it's finished. Sin was dealt with. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and he, he kind of, he died of his own choosing. It finished. It was done. As he died, there was an earthquake. Remember the veil in the temple, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom because the veil between man and God was dealt with, the sin barrier was gone. And you remember that, that various believers who had recently died came out of their tombs and went into Jerusalem and started preaching. Because death had died, you see, that day. Uh, and then the soldiers were amazed that he died so quickly. They didn't have to break his legs because they'd been to break everyone's legs and get them down for, you know, because it was Passover coming. Remember, there were two Passovers on two consecutive days because the Jews couldn't agree which was the genuine date of the Passover. So that's how Jesus could could eat the Passover on the Passover and die on the Passover. There were two Passovers, you see. And, um, and you know, so, so, you know, sort of it was clear that Jesus died, not of the crucifixion, that would have taken much longer. But he died because he laid his life down. It was the time of his choosing. And then from, uh, yeah, Joseph of Arimathea gets permission to put Jesus' body in his tomb. And that fulfilled prophecy. He'll be laying in the tomb of the rich. And a Nicodemus helps him there because Nicodemus has become a believer, albeit a bit of a secret one. And then from 3 p.m. on Friday through till early Sunday morning, Jesus' body is in the tomb. Jesus, however, is in paradise, Abraham's bosom, as it was called to the Jews, with the thief and all the Old Testament believers. Apart from at one point, he zaps over to Tartarus, doesn't he, to proclaim his victory to the demons who've been imprisoned there since the time of Noah. Right, so now we come to the Sunday morning. And we'll get the events now of, you know, sort of like Jesus being raised from the dead and the order of events and, and all his appearances. And uh, not easy putting all this together, but this is, this is, I think, if you would go through all the Gospels, put it all together, fit it all together, this is what I think they've come up with. At dawn, an angel appears at the tomb and there was an earthquake. The angel rolls the stone away, because this big stone had been put on, over it to seal it, and you remember there was a Roman guard there as well. He rolls the stone away and he sits on it. The soldiers who are guarding the grave shake and become as dead men, dead men, as you would. I mean, this angel appears, rolls this massive stone away and sits on it looking at you. Well, they realise something's up. They, they shake, become as they're just uh, catatonic with the shock. Next, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome arrive at the tomb. This is a little bit after what's just happened. Now they find the stone rolled away and that Jesus' body is gone. They don't see the angel. 
Um, and the soldiers aren't around either, so they've presumably split <laughs> the sea, come round and gone, all right? Now, these soldiers, they would have been subject to the death penalty. A Roman soldier, if, if your prisoner escapes or if you're found asleep at your post, and I mean, how do you explain this, for heaven's sake? An angel done it. Oh, no, you must have been asleep. But So they, under normal circumstances, would have been put to death. But the, the, the priests bribed the Roman authorities to get them out of trouble. And you'll remember, they said, say that the disciples stole the body. You see, so they bribed the soldiers, you know, the, the Romans, so the soldiers wouldn't be put to death and put the lie out that uh, the disciples nicked the body. Right. Mary Magdalene, so Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and uh, Salome, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Have gone to the stone. Mary Magdalene now leaves to go and tell the disciples, you know, that the stone's been rolled away and the body's gone. Mary, the mother of James, has stayed at the tomb with Salome. She sees the angel. She runs off to tell everyone and meets more women who are on their way to the tomb with spices. So these are the other women followers of Jesus turning up. Now, Peter and John arrive at the tomb. Mary Magdalene, having told them, that the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. Mary Magdalene goes back to the tomb, like Peter and John have a look and then off they go. Mary Magdalene goes back to the tomb and she's weeping, so now she's the only one at the tomb. She sees the angel who's now been joined by another angel. And apparently not realising that their angels asked them if they knew where Jesus was. Now Jesus appears at the tomb. Mary turns round and sees him, but doesn't realise it's him. She thinks he's the gardener. After all, she's crying and she thinks he's the gardener. And says, look, what's, where have you put my Lord? All right, where, you know, what have they done with him? Then he reveals himself. He says, Mary. And she realises it's Jesus and she hugs him. And he says, no, don't, because I, I, I haven't gone to be with the Father yet. And tells her to go and tell the other disciples. Now Mary, the mother of James, now comes back, having found the other women who are on their way with the spices. And she sees the two angels, all right? Only saw the one before, but the angels tell these women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. Can you see, you've got all these comings and goings at the tomb. Now, on their way, these women, on their way to tell the disciples, they meet Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to them. And later on, Jesus reveals himself to Peter. And a bit later on, we know from Luke's Gospel that there were two disciples, and we know that one of them was called Cleopas, and they were on, their road, uh, on the way to a place called Emmaus. Jesus walks with them to Emmaus, but doesn't reveal who he is. And they tell him about all the things that have happened and blah, blah, blah. And they get there, and Jesus has a meal with them, and when they break bread, 
their eyes are opened and they realise it's Jesus. And then he vanishes again. And then later on that evening, now this is all the Sunday, this is all the day that Jesus has rose again from the dead. Later on that evening, Jesus appears to all the apostles who are gathered together in one room, minus Thomas. So he appears to all the disciples, except Thomas wasn't there. Now then, one week later, he appears to all the apostles with Thomas there. And you'll remember, Thomas has done the, well, I won't believe it unless I see the, the marks, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus shows him the marks in his hands and that. And remember, Thomas falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who haven't seen who believe. Which, of course, is the vast majority of Christians. And then over the next 33 days, or 40 days, since Jesus rose again from the dead, because seven have already gone by. So there were 40 days between Jesus being raised from the dead and ascending into heaven for the final time. All right? So we've had one week, we've had seven days. So over the next 33 days, there was the occasion when there were seven disciples, Peter among them, who went fishing. Peter said, Let, let's go fishing. And you'll remember that they fished all night, didn't catch anything. And then Jesus appeared to them, and they didn't realise it was Jesus. And said, cast your net over the other side, and they got this massive draught of fish, didn't they? And, um, and then Jesus ate with them. And um, so, you know, there was that occasion when Jesus reveals himself to seven people there. Later on, all the disciples are gathered together um, on one of the mountains in Galilee and that is when Jesus gives them the, what's called the Great Commission at the end of Luke's Gospel go to all nations and baptise them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit tell them to observe all, all I've commanded you as the Great Evangelist Commission Evangelistic Commission from the church, for the Church and from Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians 15 we know of an appearance to James who was Jesus' half-brother, and also an appearance to 500 people at one time, though we don't know who those 500 people were, but obviously they were believers. And then finally, back to the Gospels, we have the last recorded appearance of Jesus to the disciples, and this was on the Mount of Olives, where 40 days after he rose again from the dead, and now we have the ascension, when Jesus ascends into the cloud and goes back to heaven. Now, during this 40 days between the resurrection and Jesus ascending for the final time, because remember he ascended for the first time on the morning he rose again from the dead, because he said to Mary, you can't touch me, I haven't ascended. But after that, people could touch him. So obviously he'd ascended that. But between the resurrection and 40 days later when Jesus ascends for the last time, there may well have been other appearances, but they're not recorded. So obviously we can only go on the ones that have been recorded. Right, now then, we've got to deal very quickly with the post-ascension appearances of Jesus, because Jesus still revealed himself physically to people after he ascended. You'll remember he did when Stephen was martyred. 
Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Do you remember, he preached to the Jews, and then it says in Acts that they could not withstand the wisdom with which he spoke, and they stoned him to death. Because sometimes wisdom has that effect. When the truth puts unrepentant people in the position where they haven't got a leg to stand on, they're like a dog between four trees, they haven't got a leg to stand on and there is no answer to the truth of their position. At that point, what do you do? You repent or you go at the messenger, don't you? And they could not resist the wisdom with which he spoke and then they stoned him to death. But you'll remember that Stephen looked up and he saw Jesus at the right hand of God. So Stephen saw Jesus after he was um, raised from the dead. You'll remember that Paul saw Jesus uh, when he was converted on the Damascus Road. And then in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 23, he records for us two other occasions when he saw Jesus. So Paul saw Jesus physically at least three times. And then lastly, in the Bible, in uh, John saw Jesus while he was imprisoned on Patmos. And it was that appearance that gave us the book of Revelation. So that's the end of Jesus' appearances as far as the Bible is concerned. But of course, through church history, there have been claims, and there's absolutely no reason to doubt all of them, that Jesus has revealed himself physically to others. There's no reason why he shouldn't. Clearly he has. There are very well-known examples. I mean, I you know, put you, for instance, Arthur Blessed, when he saw Jesus walk, you know, he, he was with a friend, and Jesus actually walked across a lake and, and, and came up to them, and oh, they just fell on the fell on the floor. And, you know, other people claim to have seen Jesus. Some of them are silly. Some of them are daft. I mean, there's one Bible teacher who claims that for months, every night, Jesus sat on the end of the bed and gave him various new revelations to preach. I mean, that, that stuff like that, that's a load of rubbish. But other, you know, other I I examples, you know, from, from some quite, well, you know, well-known people who, who there's no doubt that what they say is true. And then it's doubtless as well that through the years there's been loads of, of, of what I just call ordinary common or garden Christians who aren't well-known, nothing important about them, and they've seen Jesus as well. And I suppose at that point, and this, this might be a good place to end, is, is, is just I don't talk about it much, but I'm so very thankful that I'm one of them because I did see Jesus physically and that one of the most profound things that ever happened to me. So, there, you know, there are loads of just tin pot little believers like me, I'm sure, you know, who, who have seen Jesus as well. Jesus, I mean, <laughs> he doesn't reveal himself physically all the time. There's no reason to think that Jesus appearing physically to people has ceased. He's perfectly free to do it if he wants. And, um, well, of course, the next major appearances of Jesus will be back to when we get on to the last book in the Bible, and, uh, you know, Jesus will carry on his earthly ministry then, in the future, when he comes back, firstly to rapture the church and take us back to heaven, but then at the second coming, and then to establish his thousand-year reign on earth. But there's a, a basic chronology 
over the, um, the life and, and, and ministry of, of Jesus.